This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 22 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa announces a historic 500 billion rand coronavirus budget that's equivalent to 10% of the country's GDP. We'll hear from the architects commissioned to transform Soccer City into a 1,500-bed hospital, an architect of a different kind, Sweden's scientific advisor who has taken the Scandinavian country away from the lockdown approach of the rest of the world, and two impassioned voices calling for an end to South Africa's economic confinement. The spokesman for UCT's medical school class of 1993, and Dr. Tiens Ierloff, former chief executive of the F.W. de Klerk Foundation. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, well, tonight South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa unveiled a 500 billion rand war chest to fight the coronavirus. It'll be funded by 130 billion in reallocations from February's national budget and the balance to be borrowed from special COVID-19 support packages that are created through international institutions like the IMF, World Bank and the BRICS Bank. Here are the highlights of Ramaphosa's address to the nation. We are now embarking on the second phase of our economic response to stabilize the economy, address the extreme decline in supply and demand, and to protect jobs. As part of this phase, we are announcing this evening a massive social and economic support package of 500 billion rand which amounts to about 10% of our GDP. We've met with business, labor, and community constituency in NEDLEC. We've met with our premiers, MECs, and metro mayors, and with the members of the Presidential Economic Advisory Council. Following these meetings, Cabinet considered various proposals and finalized the social relief and economic support package that stands at the center of the second phase of our economic response. This involves, firstly, an extraordinary health budget to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. Secondly, the relief of hunger and social distress. Thirdly, support for companies and workers. And fourthly, the phased reopening of the economy. The impact of the coronavirus requires an extraordinary coronavirus budget of around 500 billion rand to direct resources towards fighting the pandemic. This will include the reprioritization of around 130 billion rand within our current budget. 
The rest of the funds will be raised from both local sources, such as the Unemployment Insurance Fund, and from global partners and international finance institutions. To date, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the BRICS Bank, the New Development Bank, that is, and the African Development Bank have been approached and are working with the National Treasury on various funding transactions. Some of these institutions have created financing packages that are aimed at assisting countries that are having to address the coronavirus crisis like us. This funding will be used in the first instance to fund the health response to coronavirus. There is a far greater need across the entire economy. We will therefore be introducing a 200 billion loan guarantee scheme in partnership with the major banks in our country, the National Treasury and the South African Reserve Bank. This will assist enterprises with operational costs such as salaries, rent and payment of suppliers. And taxpayers who donate to the Solidarity Fund will be able to claim up to an additional 10% as a deduction from their taxable income. The fourth area on which Cabinet has resolved is the phased reopening of the economy. We will follow a risk-adjusted approach to the return of economic activity, balancing the continued need to limit the spread of the coronavirus with the need to get people back to work. On Thursday, I will address the nation on the measures that will be taken beyond the nationwide lockdown to reopen the economy. South Africa's officially confirmed COVID-19 cases rose by a relatively modest 142 today to 3,465, of whom just under a third have now fully recovered. Mortalities remain at 58. Worldwide, the number of confirmed cases surpassed 2.5 million today, with deaths slightly above 175,000. Around a quarter of these cases are denoted as recovered or discharged from hospital. According to data on worldometers.info, Belgium is now officially the hardest-hit nation, with 518 deaths per 1 million of their population, followed by Spain at 455, Italy at 408, France at 319, the UK at 255, and the Netherlands at 229. In absolute terms, mortalities are by far the highest in the United States, at 43,663. That's equivalent to 132 for every 1 million residents. South Africa continues to lag the global averages, having lost the equivalent of just one person for every one million people who live here, and that compares with a global average of 22.5. Although South Africa's coronavirus cases remain among the lowest in the world on a per capita basis, as the country gets ready to reopen its economy, the medical sector is preparing for an infection spike that everybody, including the president, believes is coming. 
Among the projects is a 1 billion rand investment that will turn the 120,000-seater Soccer City into a 1,500-bed hospital. These beds will include 600 in intensive care, increasing the current national total by some 20%. Coming up in this episode, a promised interview with the architects commissioned to design a project to transform the stadium into a field hospital, and that will all be done in less than three weeks. The world continues to pay close attention to Sweden, where the authorities have chosen not to slow down the spread of the virus through an enforced lockdown. The country's chief epidemiologist believes the curve is now naturally flattening, with mortalities settling at 175 per million of population. That's three times that of lockdown-enforcing neighbour Denmark and six times the fellow Scandinavian Norway. More on that story coming up in this episode. Joining me in this very interesting discussion is Bob van Beber and Jean Grobler. They're with a company called Burchertmann and Partners. You've probably never heard of them because architects are low-key, but you've almost certainly seen the buildings that they've designed. Uh, Bob, from your side, you, you're actually the guy who designed Soccer City, which is going to be the focus of our conversation. That's correct. We did that, uh, started um, 14 years ago in 2006, started building in 2007, and had it ready by the skin of our teeth for the World Cup in 2010. And, John, from your perspective, Soccer City is now no longer going to be a football stadium, or at least during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tell us what you're going to be doing to it. Yeah, look, what happened was two days into the lockdown, we were asked by a colleague of ours from Blue IQ Infrastructure to step up and try and see if we could assist government by creating field hospitals in buildings that's not being used at the moment. And Soccer City came to mind, obviously, because it's, it's, it's fairly big. There's a lot of space. And we had access to all the information to unlock that as a field hospital. We had a 72-hour deadline on that. It took a team of around about 30 people to get all the information together. And we managed to get a design done for a 1,500-bed field hospital um, ICU standard in Soccer City on various levels. And Bob will most probably tell us a little bit more about the design in, in that respect. But it was essentially taking available spaces within the stadium and converting them into different levels of treatment facilities. So it was a team of, of uh, 30 consultants, about uh, 10 people from our own office, and consultants that we quickly got together uh, that were available. We made some very urgent phone calls and got people around the table. And I think within about two hours of getting the first call from Blue IQ infrastructure, we had one of our first uh, Zoom meetings with a whole bunch of people around around the table or the virtual table. And we started designing to try and meet this uh, less than 72 hour deadline to start Saturday afternoon and deliver something by essentially midnight um, on Monday, Monday evening. And what did you deliver? So we delivered a speculative proposal to deal with Soccer City. How does one convert an existing stadium and make it work for a fully fledged field hospital to deal with all the different requirements of a field hospital and also to deal with the different cases of, uh, of how urgent various cases are. So we had various types of scenarios and how one splits the flow of people and splits the uh, flow of doctors and the flow of patients 
and the severity of the patients in a in a stadium. Have you used any international models, uh, for instance, like O2 in London? So what we referenced is some of the information that we were able to recover from the international example of the NHS uh, field hospital in one of the convention center spaces. That was some of the information. There was also information available that was locally available on how one deals with the field hospital. So there were some references that we used. And obviously, we have a partner from Geyser Hahn Architects. We have a 50% share in a medical practice that focuses only on doing medical work. And our colleague, uh, Henry Duplessis, was part of that. So we, we spent a lot of time having conversations with Henry whilst the rest of us were drawing and collating information and converting that into a, a kind of plausible way of converting a stadium. John, how long is it going to take to do this conversion? If all the equipment is, is available, and that was the critical aspect for us, is that the equipment, the import of medical equipment is going to be the long lead item. If we take that out of the equation, we would be able to convert Soccer City into a fully-fledged field hospital in at least two to three weeks. But the equipment that needs to be imported will obviously take a little bit longer, specifically around uh, ventilators and those sort of large equipments um, that we need. Why are big stadiums like this well suited to becoming field hospitals? I think it's primarily around uh, if you take the flow and the separation of various constituent bodies that occupy a stadium, particularly when one is dealing with a kind of World Cup event and particularly a final, where you have VIPs, VVIPs, players, referees, medical staff, fans, various grades, depending on how expensive a ticket you bought. So it's kind of naturally designed to be able to separate people. And therein lies the main trick for a stadium, is that separation of people and the various constituent bodies. So you don't have crossovers. And in the field hospital environment, you don't have that additional risk of crossover infection. So you're separating people and being able to to keep them isolated to zones and to flow routes throughout the stadium and to ensure that doctors and medical staff have the same ability, uh, services that get provided, deliveries, removal of uh, contaminated waste. And obviously, unfortunately, in this scenario, you're also dealing with people that, that may eventually die and the removal of bodies that remain uh, infectious for, for three days after their death. So that kind of in some way uh, lends itself to operation of all of those constituent bodies. So, for instance, in a stadium, in, certainly in South Africa, you have boxes. Would they be operating theatres or, or maybe ICU units? Yeah, in, in our proposal at Soccer City, we propose them as being ICU units, so uh, quite severe cases, but not the most severe cases. So you could essentially convert each skybox or suite with minimum two beds and provide additional services in the passages outside and plug those into the suites. So in a way, kind of ideally suited. So if we have uh, 192 suites at Soccer City, Take that at two beds per suite, you can get almost 400 people in what we call a category, um, actually ICU beds on the suites, and they're isolated from all the other categories. Extraordinary, extraordinary. What is it, or how, would, how much would it cost to convert Soccer City into this field hospital, and how many people or how many patients would it be able to cater for? John? So cost-wise, it's difficult to say because obviously the cost associated to the equipment is the driving factor. 
that's almost 55% of the cost. And we've managed to get it to something around about 500,000 rand a bed, um, excluding the equipment. But from a patient point of view, there's going to be 1,500 beds. So we expect around about so many uh, patients. And then the ratios of staff is actually quite high. In some cases, it's almost three people to a patient and depending on various stages of your infection. So there might be even three, three and a half thousand people working there at one stage. So we actually had to cater for all of that as well as part of the planning. You won't have much change left from a billion rand in doing the conversion. No, it's extremely expensive because of the equipment that is so expensive. To give you an idea, ventilator costs around about 600,000 rand each. So to put that into context, you know, if you want to have a thousand ventilators, there's half your budget just in ventilators. So it's the medical equipment that's really pushing the price up as much because the structures that we're utilizing are existing and or are temporary. So um, that's not really 5% was a construction cost of the total budget. Um, the rest is all medical equipment and temporary facilities like HVSC, um, backup generation, those sort of things that couldn't be catered in the building itself. A large, large cost of this is purely equipment to facilitate the ICU systems. So as we are right now in South Africa, we have very low infections. We've flattened the curve, apparently, certainly from the data I've seen, better than even South Korea. We haven't seen uh, the, the flood of uh, patients that we were expecting. If it continues along this line, is it possible that Soccer City will never be turned into a hospital? Yes, that is the possibility. And in many ways, we kind of hope that that's where we get to so that we don't have to execute on this. I think the, the purpose of the proposal is to be ready, to be able to, to know that it's possible, to empower our health department and government to make those decisions. But in many cases, we actually hope that we don't have to build this thing. So it's, it really is forward planning, 1,500 additional beds that can be added into the system if they are required. Exactly. When will you know for sure whether you've got to pull the trigger and, and get cracking on this? Alec, we don't know. We will have to wait and see from the government's point of view how they would like to treat this. And obviously, as you mentioned now, the infection rates have to justify this sort of expense because it's going to be a joint venture between public and private enterprises. So you have to have a reason to pull this trigger. And at the moment, we don't think it's necessary. And as Bob said, hopefully we don't have to. Yeah, let's wait and see. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't happen. How many beds are there in South Africa? There's only 3,000 ICU beds in South Africa. How so many would be here, would be at Soccer City? 400 on the, on the suite levels and another 200 on the field. So 600 ICU wow. beds. And then with the very extreme cases, another 100 odd people on the field as well. So, but ICU proper uh, 600 beds. And are, are there other plans like this around the country? Um, in, in, in the background. And presumably there are other stadiums in other parts of the country that are also being looked at this way. Yeah, I've heard that they've looked at PE Stadium, that there's also a proposal on the table there. So it wouldn't surprise us that most of the kind of bigger stadiums have been considered or big convention spaces uh, or exhibition spaces have been considered. And I think it's really just to be ready to so that if the government pushes the button, that some of that forward thinking has already happened. I think for us, the interesting part was how quickly we were able to get everybody around the table and have a conversation and start getting high-level experienced input into a scheme and deliver something within 24 hours. I think that was a, an amazing thing. And to quote John, we were quite proud of our profession and the professionals in the built environment that they got together so quickly 
And literally, I think one of our calls, we had 30 people on the call, hmm. all working remotely on a weekend from a Saturday, Saturday afternoon to Monday evening. And uh, the document was delivered Tuesday morning. Sean gave it to Blue IQ. It was a proper document, properly thought out. I can't remember how thick it was, but I'm going to guess it was about 200 pages and fully costed and fully worked out. And we knew that we could implement um, at a moment's notice. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. University of Cape Town medical students who graduated in 1993 are obviously a pretty close group. They have put together an open letter to the president of South Africa outlining what they believe should be done. Uh, and amongst the ideas or the intentions is to remove the lockdown immediately. Uh, the spokesman for the group, Dr. Fred Tyler. South Africa is different in many, many, many ways. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wrote the letter. And you just really have to read the letter to understand it. But to to make a point, we're not a first world society. Before this whole process, you know, economically and our health system were on its knees. And hats off exactly to the president for for being absolutely on cue with what he did in the initial aspects of the of the lockdown. I think it was absolutely perfect. And now we really need to understand how we're going to move forward and what are the factors that are going to mostly impact on our country, essentially. The lockdown is purely a medical perspective and one really needs to go back and understand what it's trying to achieve. And what it's trying to do is stop this massive influx of sick people onto a health system, essentially so that people don't die unnecessarily. And that's really what a lockdown in the world is about. And we must not lose fact of that. And as we spoke about in the letter, in South Africa, in many aspects, you know, not everyone has access to all the facilities, you know, we make judgments every single day about who gets access to dialysis, who doesn't get access, who gets access to this form of therapy, who, who gets access to this high class kind of medication for cancer treatments and specifically in the state region. And our system is, is used to making decisions that are governed by a process and a budget and a management. And I'm obviously, I'm a private practice, uh, a urologist and I also work in the state facilities. And this is what we live. Even before this pandemic started, more people died from poverty. They died from normal flu. They died from corona. Just to unpack a little bit more here, the point that you made earlier was that this bought us time. The lockdown has bought us time to get ready. Uh, It also told the public how grave the situation is. However, internationally, these kind of decisions on lockdowns were made in an environment where the mortality rate from COVID-19 was presumed to be quite a lot higher than it is today. Correct. And the question is, how do we actually interpret those figures and how close are they to the truth? I think the one thing that we do know is that we've delayed, as you will agree, we've kind of flattened the curve as we're, as was originally the, the whole idea, you know, to try and flatten the curve and ideally reduce the mortality of this process until I don't think anyone in the beginning even understood until it goes away, maybe, or we get a treatment. So, so that's our reality. And we certainly have done that. I mean, our figures are not dramatic. Right now, there's hospitals that have got wards closed waiting for this massive surge that it's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. But on the flip side, you've got an economy that's being beaten to a point where that could well be far worse than potential death from 
COVID-19. So what is it that you would like the president to do? We would like to relieve this lockdown situation. Society has learned that we have to keep our elderly and high-risk people in the community hidden from this disease. We have to keep the immunocompromised and the health-compromised people in our country hidden from this disease. And fortunately, the younger people should probably shrug this whole process off like a common cold and not even actually get affected in any way. We need to actually try and understand how we make this thing go away. It goes away when... You have the herd immunity concept, and 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 I want to quote a figure of 60%, but I could well be wrong. But a, a majority number of the population really needs to get this thing and survive it, okay, for it to go away. And and I mean to try and illustrate that the virus lives in human beings. And let's say I have it, and I've got a strong immune system, and I survive it. My immune system will overcome the virus as will most of the majority of the population. And we agree the, the mortality rates right now, as we're seeing, is less than 1%. So we have to back that. And then there will be people who will get it and unfortunately die from it. And, and the virus can't live in someone that's dead. And so it will also go away. And eventually when there's not enough human beings where the virus can infect that's how this thing goes away. So in other words, it's not going to go away on its own. It's going to need to work its way through the population before it disappears from from society. Or we get a, correct, or we get a cure or a vaccine. I mean, they've never really developed a really clever coronavirus vaccine. It doesn't exist. And there's some very, very clever people worldwide who are developing this with, I'm sure, lots of of potential um, financial implications, and they're about 18 months away. That's not a reality. So at some point, one needs to try and understand what we're trying to achieve from lockdown, and be that as may, let's call it preparation. I would imagine, um, as there's some pretty decent people in the world of medicine in South Africa, some very clever, hardworking, very, very bright, astute people, they would have been prepared to the best of the ability that they can prepare. I think the lockdown up until this point has been critical because it's it's shown how important it is that this is a risk to our human society. It's shown that we've had to change our behavior, which is what it's about. And I mean, as you will understand, many people have changed their behavior. And so therefore, as a group, we, we feel that you would hide your elderly and your health compromised away from the system. And I think that's critical. And that's why partial lockdown allows for the economy to move on. It allows for people to get exposed and to probably be less affected by this process sooner rather than later. And then this thing has got a chance of going away because we can't wait 18 months. Dr. Tyler, the interesting point about all of this is that the people most at risk outside from the very elderly, are exactly those of you who wrote this letter. It's the health workers. Do all health workers uh, believe the same thing? Because it sounds very much like you're going the Swedish route uh, of Professor Johan Giesecke and and his idea that you can't stop this thing, so rather let it work through the society, but give the society rules will reduce the or flatten the curve. Correct. I mean, that essentially fundamentally is, is the base. I think they might be unlocking a bit radically, but let, let the people who are going to make the decisions decide that. I think the risks of poverty, you must know, we all, we all must all be in agreement. This thing is still going to spike in South Africa. And so can you imagine when we've got a community that are hungry with people dying around them like crazy? 
So the idea that, it's, it's, that, you, that you're calling for is let's just get the economy working again, try and get people who are not really at risk from this, the 99.5% of the population correct. who won't die from it, are back to work. And that, that will be the best way to actually the, protect the, the nation against it. Correct, because the quicker this thing goes away, we're going to take you back to what are we trying to achieve here? We need herd immunity because we know that we can't wait 18 months. And and the fastest way we can get there is to have the people that will push this off as a small little cold exposed and protect the, the at-risk of our population and allow them at least to have an economy to be able to earn some money. I mean, there's reports. I'm obviously in East London. There's reports of huge funds of money being accessible for vouchers, etc., etc., etc. I don't think anyone knows even how to even get one of those vouchers. The poverty is, is I think, going to have a more dramatic effect, much more dramatic than the less than one percent mortality that we understand from this disease process. And I think that that is why we need to understand it from that perspective. And it, it is really quite interesting that our class would after much debate and, and from all walks of life, you know, some people are solely in government practice, some people are solely in, in, in private practice, some people are not even practicing in this country. But we all understand how medicine works in South Africa. These brave, dynamic people that make decisions and they make decisions not just on medical facts, but by budgetary constraints all the time. And we need to understand what we're trying to achieve. So if we can get this thing over with as quickly as possible, we feel that this might be something to think about. Dr. Fred Tyler from the class of uh, the University of Cape Town in 1993. Inside COVID-19 from News. Sweden went against conventional wisdom and simply refused to participate in economic lockdowns, deciding instead to trust its citizens to apply social distancing and stay at home if they had any COVID-19 symptoms. Despite criticism from pretty much every other country on earth, the Swedes have stuck with the national scientific advisor, eminent virologist Professor Johan Giesecke. In a straight-talking interview with a British website Unheard, Professor Giesecke supported Stanford University professor Dr. J. Natacharya's contention that COVID-19 mortality is closer to the seasonal flu's rate of 0.1% than the other numbers that have been totted around the world. Here's the highlights. The main reason is that we, or the Swedish government, decided early in January that the measures we should take against the pandemic should be evidence-based. And when you start looking around for the measures that are being taken now by different countries, you find that very few of them have the shred of evidence base. But one we know that's known for 150 years or more, and that is washing your hands is good for you and good for others when you're in an epidemic. But the rest, like border closures, school closures, social distancing, there's almost no science behind most of these. The main difference to other countries is that you're not locked up in your home. If you go out to buy food or groceries or drugs, I mean medicines. There's no police to stop you in the street and say, ask you what you're doing here. That's one thing. People are asked to stay inside, but there's no reinforcement or enforcement of that. People do it anyway. So that's one. We have the rule that a crowd cannot be bigger than 50 people. 
and uh, the schools, the upper schools are closed, secondary education and universities are closed, schools up to age 15, 16 are open. The nursing homes or, or houses for old people are closed to visitors. It's very similar to the one that the UK had before there was a famous paper in by the Imperial College, by the modelers who made models for infectious diseases that came out on the day after you made a U-turn in England. And we were very pleased with having the same policy as, as the UK that gave some credibility to what we were doing. But uh, then Mr. Johnson made, made his 180-degree turn. But the strategy is to protect the old and the frail, try to minimize their risk of becoming infected and taking care of them if they get infected. And if you do that the way we're doing it, you would probably get herd immunity in the end. But that's a byproduct of the, it's not the, the main reason to do it. The turning point did seem to be that Imperial College report, which mm-hmm. forecasts 510,000 deaths in the UK with a completely unmitigated approach, 250,000 deaths with a mitigated approach, which is roughly equivalent to what you're doing in Sweden. And then it suggests that it might be as few as 20,000 if we did a full suppression or lockdown. What was your impression of that paper? I think it's not very good. And the thing that they miss a little is any models for infectious disease spread are very popular. Many people do them. They're good for teaching. They seldom tell you the truth because I make a small parenthesis. Which model could have assumed that the outbreak would start in northern Italy, in Europe. Difficult to model that one. Any such model, it looks complicated. There are strange mathematical formula and integral signs and stuff, but it rests on the assumptions, and the assumptions in that article could be heavily criticized for. I won't go through that. It would take the rest of your day if I went through them all. The paper was never published scientifically, it's not peer-reviewed, which a scientific paper should be. It's just an internal departmental report from Imperial. And it's fascinating. I don't think any other scientific endeavor has made such an impression on the world as that rather debatable paper. Uh, one thing that the model has missed is that it assumes that the uh, hospital capacity will remain the same. And that's not what's happening anywhere. I mean, in Sweden, we've tripled our intensive care capacity, and I think that's happening in the UK as well. But the paper completely overlooks that. It cites that as a static thing. Are we going to see second and third spikes now after this? It will be part of the exit strategy, because the only way to check that you're, if you're taking away one restriction, let's say we'll open the schools again, as an example, how do you evaluate that? You have to see, ooh, Numbers are going up again. More people are dying. We have to stop that. We have pulled back that softening and try another. That's what exit strategy will be in all countries. Countries will ease up a little on the restriction, see what happens over the next two, three weeks. Ooh, it didn't work very well. We resume that. We try another restriction. We lift that one. Oh, it worked. And that's, so this is every country will have to do it that way. And so, that means that the, increasing number of deaths will be part of checking which strategy should be kept and not. When I first heard, which is now six weeks ago, about the different draconic measures that were taken, I asked myself, how are they going to climb down from that one? 
When will they open the schools again? What should be the criterion to open the schools? Did any one of the strong and very decisive politicians in Europe think about how do we get out of this when they introduced it? And I think that would be a problem for the UK as well. I think what we're seeing is a tsunami of a usually quite mild disease, which is sweeping over Europe, and some countries do this, and some countries do that, and some countries do, don't do that, and in the end there was very, very little difference. Uh, I think it will be like a severe influenza season, the same as, uh, which would be on an order of 0.1% maybe. Do you think that is also true in Sweden then, that a, that a substantial percentage of the population has had it? Yep. I'm rather certain of that, actually. And when we get, we don't have the tests really yet. As you know, you, you have these two kinds of tests. One that tells that you have it now, and another one that tells you that you had it at some point before, an immunity or serology test. And they are just being developed and they're just being employed. I know I, from discussions with, with friends in the UK that you started last week with 30 3,500 such tests, and you will go on with eight in one week, and then it will be about 8,000 per week. And when you get tests that show if people had had the disease, you'll see that most of them never even dreamt they had it. What am I most afraid of? It's the uh, dictatorial trends in Eastern Europe that Orban is now dictator for Hungary forever. There's no finishing date. I think the same is popping up in other countries. It may pop up in, in more established democracies as well. I think the ramifications can be huge from this. You don't know really what will happen. And this fear of contagion, I think, is almost genetic in people. New disease, a lot of people dying, and showing political strength, decisiveness, force, very important for politicians. So you think the correct policy from the start, just to get this clear, should have been to shield old and vulnerable groups? There we failed. Sweden failed. We were not on our toes enough to really shield the old people. We should have banned visitors earlier. Uh, many of the people working in nursing homes are from other countries. They're uh, refugees or, or uh, asylum seekers in Sweden. Their Swedish may not be perfect. They may not always be understand the information that has been spread to the population. There are many things we could have done better a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago. I don't think you can stop it. You, try, you can stop it for some time, but then... I mean, countries that have been successful, South Korea is giving up now. They can't maintain their policy. Taiwan, I don't know about Taiwan. They were quite successful. Singapore, similar problem. But in the end, the result would be rather much the same. And I agree it's a bit callous to say that to let people. We're not saying that. We're saying protect the old, try to slow the spread of the epidemic a bit so that the healthcare system will manage when we have many sick people, many severely ill people. You can't really... At some point, the, the it's like, uh, tsunami is not bad. It will roll over Europe, no matter what you do. But how long in a democracy do you think it will keep a lockdown? How long will it take before people say, no, I'm not taking it? You can do it in China. In China, you can do it. You can tell people to stay at home, and you can weld back their doors so they can't get out. But in a democracy, you can't.
And after three, four weeks, people will say, well, I don't know anyone who had the COVID and I haven't met and I want to go out. I want to go down to the pub. And do you think you could keep the lockdown to protect the old people until we have good drugs and good vaccines? Six months, a year, 18 months. I think people would get a bit tired of it, even if they support the policy. Inside COVID-19 from Business. Dr. Tiens Ierloff, the former chief executive of the F.W. de Klerk Foundation, has launched a strong appeal that government should not extend the current lockdown, he says, for even another day. Dr. Ierloff said the lockdown had achieved what it set out to do, but the economy urgently needs to be opened up. The full interview with Dr. Ierloff is on Biz News Radio's podcast channel. In it, he also comments on former President de Klerk's controversial comment on apartheid that got him into so much trouble. Even the medical statistics show that we've had all the benefits we could from a slower track of, of the disease, infection rate, and now we must wait up against the enormous damage that's being done to the economy. My problem is, and I specifically quoted the, the minister responsible, of course, Zanad Lamini Zuma, last Thursday, the whole approach is about human lives, which is fine, but then they think that human lives can only be lost through COVID-19. And they don't realize that human lives can also be lost through the economy imploding. I, what I did, I, I looked far and wide and I got something from Davi Ruet on his blog where he said that we can be compared with Greece, where they, in the last 10 years, when they really, the economy went down, their GNP per person, gross national product, came down as 20%. And that meant that they lost one person per thousand more to deaths. So actually, the, the argument that Darwin makes is that uh, slow down your economy. If you lose uh, GNP 10% or whatever it is, which we will surely do, will cause more deaths because people will die from hunger and a lack of jobs, etc., etc. So that's the point I was trying to make, that we cannot afford to, after the 1st of May, have an extension of the lockdown as it is in the state that we have. Do you think our lockdown was far too strict? Look, I think for the first three weeks it was probably you know, something we, we had to face and, and we, we've never done this before and I know that other countries had different lockdowns. I think two things that we, we didn't really as a country consider properly enough. The one is the impact on the economy by locking everything down with the exception of a very narrow definition of essential services. And secondly, we did not, and our government did not consider the impact of our big informal sector not being able to work on wages, informal selling of food, informal industries in, in townships. And together with that, that it is not possible in a, in a sort of suburban house when you have two or three people or four people, you can survive. But if you live six people in a room uh, in a township, and next door lives another 12 people in two other rooms, there's no way you can have social distancing. So to ask those people to practice social distancing was never a realistic option from the beginning. And I think that's where they worried, but that's where I think we should have been a little bit smarter. 
You've mentioned the damage to the economy and also the possibility that businesses might not want to continue funding the Solidarity Fund. Do you think that's a real danger? Well, I think if Cyril, if he has any sense, he would say, look, the lockdown is gone by the 30th of April. After that, it will be social distancing, responsibilities, other things, you know, wear wear masks, make, make wearing masks compulsory and so on. If he extends this lockdown, I think many businesses will say, well, now we can't uh, stand in financially for the mistakes of the government, for the economy. We will now have to look at using the money we would have put in the solidarity fund into helping our businesses and paying our people you know, if, if there's another week or two. So the aim of this article, and I think many articles written by people thinking like an economist, uh, are now please don't consider even extending the lockdown in its present form for another day. Many of the scientists are worried that you have a lockdown and then you come out of it and then there's a massive spike in cases. How do you think South Africa can mitigate that? This was, in a sense, the core of of the article that I wrote. I took the speech that Professor Karim, who is a well-known epidemiologist and is also the chair of the Ministerial Advisory Committee Committee on COVID-19, he gave a speech about a week ago in which he said that the lockdown bought us time and was meant to buy us time to prepare for the inevitable spike in the infection rate. And whatever we do, we will not be able to uh, contain or to prevent the spike infections. My argument in the article was, if that is indeed the case, and I have no reason to believe it's not the case, why do we extend the lockdown? Because the lockdown will not help us to prevent the spike. The spike will come as it has come in many countries. We now had, it would be five weeks, next Thursday, the 30th end of the month. Why did we not get everything ready so that we could handle the spike? So my argument is that if the spike is inevitable, rather than stop the lockdown, open the economy, and manage the spike as well as you can. And I think that's something that we now have to do, as many countries have had to do before us. We've managed with the, with the lockdown to flatten the curve to, to some extent. There's been a, the last two, three days a bit of a spike, but I think it's because we're t- doing more tests. But if that's inevitable, the question is why they not open the economy up in a responsible way. I'm not saying, you know, unfettered. I'm saying uh, there are factories, industry, manufacturing, mining, etc., etc., where people can work in a controlled environment where you can manage uh, the problems of any infection and you can prevent it. And why not do that? I mean, there are, there are some very stupid examples which I think your audience would, would appreciate where uh, initially they said no wine may be exported. And then they said, no, you can now export the wine. And two days ago they said, no, you can't export the wine. Now the problem is the wine has already been produced. It's lying there. The, the risk to anyone to get the wine from the wine farms to the ship is is null. The other big controversy, obviously, in South Africa is the, the ban on, on the selling of tobacco, which is also plain stupid because you, people go to a supermarket and they buy groceries. They also can buy cigarettes at the same grocery store, but they're not allowed. The idea is that you shouldn't go to a grocery store too often, but I mean, but you can't buy cigarettes. That's just stupid. And it seems to me that the Minister of Health, uh, who's a medical doctor himself, 
as a thing against smokers and he wants to sort of tell them, look, while you're busy and while we have this lockdown, someone stop smoking all the time. stupid, you know. And I'm not a smoker, and I, but I, I believe in liberties. And I think this is a liberty. If someone wants to smoke, you can't take that away from that person, especially in time which is stressful, like, like the present time is. This has been episode 22 of Inside COVID-19. Access to every episode is available by subscribing on Spotify or iTunes or by downloading the BizNews podcast app in the Apple App Store. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.